Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good for me to be with you this morning. My name is Reino. I'm introducing myself to you because it might be that you have not met me before. I started uh, my church planting residency at Rooted Fellowship on the 1st of February. And my wife and uh, my wife Marie and our two daughters, Ava and Katie, somewhere in February joined us on the stage. It's so good for me to be with you this morning. Um, May is always a very emotional, reflective, philosophical month for me. I got saved on the 17th of May in 2005, deep into the night. And it's 13 years later now. And um, always through the month of May, I reflect on who I was and uh, who I am now and who I am becoming and what God is doing in my life. Um, it's such a privilege to just reflect on 13 years of growth, sussing out what God has for me, getting to know Him more and more, um, expounding the Scriptures more and more, understanding His story, understanding His love and grace for me. And uh, this morning I realized that if you would have told me on the 16th of May 2005, one day before I crossed the line of faith, that in 13 years' time I'll be preaching to a transcultural church in Pretoria, I probably would have said to you, sir or ma'am, I think that you're speaking to the wrong person. Never in my life that I dream of doing this, and, and I get to have the privilege this morning. So I'm so excited with you. I pray that if you are as rooted as you can be at Rooted, uh, that you'll find it, do you see what I did there? Hashtag. Um, that you'll find it clear, that you'll find it understandable, and most of all, that you'll find it inspirational and transformative. And uh, if you know nothing about the Bible, and if you have not crossed the line of faith, and if you're not quite sure why you are here today, don't check out. I promise to not speak Christianese, I'll stick to English, and I promise to expound the scriptures clearly so that you can also understand it and see that a life of faith is really the only life that we do have. So we called this series The Grind of the Grace, and it has served as a theme throughout the whole book. Now why on earth would we call it The Grind of the Grace? I put it to you, three things I think. James says we have to, have to respond to God's grace given to us through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not something that you can hear or grasp and do nothing about it. It is impossible. The reason why we call it a grind is because of our sinful or fallen nature. Well, let me say it in a different way. The response that James describes to this good news of God's grace is against the grain of our world. It's against the grain of our culture. It's against the grain of our sinful nature. So it asks for grinding. It asks for intentional choices being made again and again and again. Now because we're finishing up this series today, I have to intro my sermon well. It's important for me um, so that we can wrap up the whole series. So I'd like to show you three pictures uh, just to remind you of where we came from. The first one is um, that James is a human being who we read about in the Bible, in Mark, in Galatians, as well as in Acts 12 and 15, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. So this person standing in the middle is James. Iakobos is his Greek name. Now, the reason I'm showing you this picture is the bullet in the block in the right-hand bottom corner is where I want you to look. This person, James, in the 20 or so years that he headed, headed up the church or was the head of the church in Jerusalem, he lived through famine, and poverty, and a lot of heavy, heavy, heavy persecution. Okay, so remember, that is the person that taught this. That, that is the person who wrote down these words for us. Second slide I want to show you is that the book of James is what we call wisdom literature. Top left corner. And the book of James is the legacy of his wisdom. Now he drew out of two sources mainly, look at the clouds, the one is Jesus' teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mountain that we find in Matthew 5 to 7, and the other one is the book of Proverbs that you might have read in the Old Testament, that is part of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and that was the two main influences for James, teaching what he taught us, or writing down what we do have. Now if you look at the block right, uh, uh, well, Far right, it, it says, James is a collection of short wisdom speeches full of metaphors and one-liners. And because of that, we can't rush 
through James. That's why we took 13 weeks, and we probably could have taken 13 more if we wanted to. You can't rush through it. You need to, you need to marinate in those words. Because every section that we've read, he can actually drop the mic and leave. You know what I mean? He ends every section with this catchy one-liner so that you can remember it, so you can digest it, so that you can marinate in it. So it's wisdom literature. And the third slide is to ask the question, why on earth would we want to do this? I mean, Tiamo spoke now in question of the day about it's hard to obey James. And it doesn't really get easier. I would like to put it to you that I think it gets more difficult because you understand, you know, what James means and you also understand what it asks of you. So why would I want to do this? Why would I want to listen to him? Why would I want to obey him? James says, so that you can be made perfect. Life's trials produce an endurance, a long-suffering, a patience, a steadfastness that can make us perfect. It's to be made perfect. That's why we ought to live with wisdom. And the word perfect that he uses in the Greek is the word teleos. It means complete, whole, the finished product, the desired end state. James says that through God's grace and through His Spirit dwelling in us, through us living out the implications of the gospel, we will become whole. We will no longer be, look at the, uh, uh, the picture of, the, well, the, oh, how do I put this diplomatically correct? The black guy. No, I'm joking. We, we shouldn't be fragmented anymore. Our lives should not be full of inconsistencies between what we confess to be our faith and what we actually do with our day-to-day lives. Living with wisdom, obeying the gospel, obeying Jesus will lead towards teleos. It will lead to be made whole. And I don't know about you, but that is a fantastic vision or picture of any Christian's life. Can you think what it must be like to be less and less inconsistent? Or more and more consistent. Less and less fractured, but more and more whole. Less and less, um, I don't walk my talk. And more and more, I walk my talk and I talk my walk. It sounds like spoken word, but I'm not going to go into that now. <laughs> so that's the backdrop for my sermon today. A human being that lived through heavy, heavy trials. That gives us wisdom so that we can be made whole and perfect. So what will come to us today is James's teaching on three things, and those three things are all community issues, which is great. It speaks to the us or the we dimension of church, and not the I or me dimension of church. And those three things that we'll be focusing on will be speaking the truth, faith-filled prayer, and restoring people, or other people to the faith, or restoring them through faith. Speaking the truth, faithful prayer, restoring people to and through faith. Before we read the scriptures, I would like to, I would like to posture us to receive what we ought to receive today by reading Eugene Peterson. He's a theologian and a writer, and he's also the guy that translated the message translation of the Bible. He um, in, introduces or, or yeah, he describes the book of James as follows. And I would like to read it for us and you can follow with me um, on the slides. When Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders on observing this conclude that there is nothing to the religion business except perhaps business and dishonest business at that. Insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Many of the people outside the hospital are every bit as sick as the ones inside, but their illnesses are either undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside the church. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are, rather, places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. The letter of James shows one of the church's early pastors skillfully going about his work of confronting, diagnosing, and dealing with areas of misbelief and misbehavior that had turned up in congregations committed to his care. Deep 
And living wisdom is on display here. Wisdom both rare and essential. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is skill in living. For what good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? What good is an intention if we can't sustain it? According to church traditions, James carried the nickname Old Camel Knees because of thick calluses built up on his knees from many years of determined prayer. The prayer is foundational to the wisdom. Prayer is always foundational to wisdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a gift it is to know you, to know your grace, to know your love, to accept your sacrificial life through faith and to be saved, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be given a new identity, to be marked as one of your children, to be taken up into your family, to have a new purpose, a new life, and to experience that while we are still here on earth, living amongst the most broken of them all. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you that your word still speaks to us today. That your word is sufficient for us. That it gives us what we ought to know to live a life of faith. A life that you describe, Lord Jesus, as a life of fulfillment. A life of joy. A life of peace. A life of purpose. A life of being reconciled to the Father who created us. Thank you that we could have spent all these weeks in the book of James. Thank you for these catchy one-liners and wisdom teachings that has had the ability to just cut through everything that we put up to save ourselves. Every piece of critique we could give to why this is unachievable, the scriptures have just sliced through that. And we appreciate that. And we're thankful for that. And we honor you for that. And we praise you for that. For, Lord Jesus, we want to be made whole. We want to be made perfect through life's trials and persecutions. We want to be steadfast, patient, enduring people. For the sake of your name and your gospel spreading. And your body moving on this earth. So that all people might know you, the Savior the Almighty One, the One that rules above all names, Jesus Christ. We open ourselves up to your scripture. We submit ourselves to your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So I say James' teaching will come to us as three main points. And what I'm going to do is I'm literally going to divide the piece of scripture, James 5, verse 12 to 20, into those three parts. It's going to make no sense to read it as one and then go, it's actually not one part, it's three. Okay, so I'm just going to handle it like that from the beginning. I've taken the scripture from the Christian Standard Bible, which is a, it's a translation, much like the ESV, but it was translated just to read a little bit easier and also to take out words that we don't use in our common vernacular anymore and to put in words that might help us feel a little bit more accessible. Okay, so let's read James 5 verse 12 out of the Christian Standard Bible. We'll show the scripture on the screen. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. And then I can just imagine James looking at his congregations, giving the slow nod, giving them time to marinate in this. This verse is really easy to interpret, to expound, and to explain. It's about telling the truth. And here's the whole point of it. For a Christian... His or her word should be binding. It's the third time now that James is speaking about what we actually say and the words we use. And the, uh, the other two times he said it before, he says, your words reflect your character. What comes out of you will show what is inside of you. So think, 
think before you speak. Do not speak in a flippant way. Do not speak in a shallow way. Use your words wisely so that it can also build up. And that's it. So your word should be binding. Now James draws in this verse on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, especially from verse 33 to 37. And he condemns two things. The first thing he condemns is taking an oath to evade responsibility. Lying. That's what he condemns. And taking an oath while you lie. I promise you I didn't get that email. But you did. But now you're using an oath to evade that responsibility. I swear to you I didn't know. You are lying. And that's what James says. We ought not to do. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't ever take an oath or make a promise or swear to evade your responsibility because it is a non-binding oath. What does that oath bind you to? Check this one. I promise I won't do it that way again. Who is binding me to what? And who will hold me responsible or accountable for what if I speak in such a way? So he says, do not use oaths to evade responsibility because it is a non-binding oath. Let your yes be your yes, your no be your no. I did not do that. And I apologize for it. Or, I will be there. I will be there. Yes. That's the way he wants us to speak. So that's one thing he condemns. And the other thing he condemns is just speaking in a shallow or flippant way. Speaking words that are not building up other people, especially not our brothers and sisters. Now I'm not saying there's no room for jokes and there's no room for humor. I like to speak that way myself. But there is really stuff that we say that is not wholesome to anyone. Paul says in Ephesians, if you want to speak and you know that this won't build anyone up, just keep your mouth shut. That's really not anything wholesome to say then. Now I don't care who you are or how you speak. We need to marinate in this. Before you object, before you feel we are being too conservative, just marinate in it for a second. Let it soften you up. He also uses the words so that you won't fall under judgment. It's just important for me to explain the word fall. It literally means fall. Like not standing anymore. Okay, so there's no philosophical construct of falling under judgment. He says if you get judged and you made oaths that was non-binding and you swore like people in your popular culture, you won't stand under judgment. You'll fall. That's what he says. Great. And that's it. Part one. Speak the truth. Okay, part two will be verses 13 through 18. Now what James does now is he shifts into a world of congregational relationships, okay? The us or the we dimension. And he embraces the entire spectrum of life's experiences. From gladness to sadness and everything in between. And what he gives us, or what this piece of scripture describes to us, is a a very exciting but kind of puzzling picture or glimpse of how the early church reacted to these circumstances. Okay, and I think that's how we ought to read it. So there was things happening in the early church, things from gladness to sadness, and they reacted to those things in a certain way. So let me read this piece of scripture to us, and I'm going to read it as if James would be wrapping up his sermon, because I do think that he actually took some time between speaking these truths or these teachings. So after his slow nod... Of speaking the truth, he probably would have said the following. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. And the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Insert. Do you guys remember the story in First Kings chapter 17 and 18? He would have just uh, referred to the writings, the kutibim, because they divided the Old Testament into three parts. Do you, do you guys remember the story in the writings of Elijah? Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Part two. Now, these detailed descriptions and procedures that we find in this part is very unique in the New Testament. Okay? That means that reacting to these circumstances in the way that this piece of scripture describes is not described this way anywhere else in the New Testament. Okay, so we see a unique snapshot of a unique congregation written by a unique person. Therefore, we have to spend some time this morning, now, to really understand what this piece of scripture means. And we must understand what it means so that we can understand what we ought to do with this piece of scripture. Or, say differently, how we should react when we face these circumstances in life. Okay. So I want us to consider three things. And if you're not with me anymore, just go, dude, I'm not with you. But I think we need to know or at least consider these three things to understand this piece of scripture. The first thing is the word difference. It was a different time that James lived in, the first century, not the 21st century. Okay? A completely different culture that James lived in. Probably just as complex as we would call the culture in Pretoria. Maybe a little bit less, only because of the amount of languages and the amount of values or cultural values that was held. But it was a very complex culture and in that different time in that different culture they had different medical and clinical practices than we have today so a few things are important the first is jewish people did not make any distinction between the parts of our bodies a human being was a whole being we speak about your spirit and your mind and your emotions and your physical body. A Jewish person who is the crowd to which James writes did not speak that way. You were a whole person. Paul in Thessalonians writes about mind and soul and spirit. But the, he wrote that to a Greek crowd. For it was a popular way of thinking that there has to be like something inside of me, like wrapped and kept in a jail, and I need to be saved, like out of this thing into something different. Philosophical stuff, okay? Not condescending it, but that was a Greek way of thinking. Jewish people said, I am a whole being. At the most, I'll make a distinction between inside and outside. Think about the laws in the Old Testament. There are things that you do for your inside, and there are things that you do for your outside. And if there are things on your outside that's unsavory, go and sit somewhere, be cleansed again, and then come back. Because you might infect someone else with whatever it is that is on your outside. That's how they thought. That was the dominant pattern or way of thinking. So, if you were sick, then you were sick holistically. You didn't have a bug in your nose that caused secretion. You were sick. Not a certain part of you. You, as a whole person, were sick. So something's not right, either outside or inside, or both. So the cure is something for the outside and something for the inside. That is how they thought. Now look in this piece of scripture. So for the outside, oil is given. For the inside, prayer. So the oil on the outside is not necessarily to heal the sickness on the outside, but it's to make sure that both outside and inside is covered in this sickness of yours. Think about fever. Piretos, it's the Greek word for it. In uh, uh, Matthew 8, Luke 4, John 4. Fever was a very common, like an umbrella term used for sickness in those days. Why? Because fever is on the inside, but it manifests on the outside. Does that make sense? So, oh, on the inside I feel horrendous, and now there's sweat on the outside. You know, or I'm hot and then I'm cold. 
Thank you, Katy Perry. Nee? So I'm hot, and then I'm cold, I'm hot, and then I'm cold. And, and no one can really point to where the problem is. I mean, you're not going to do, if you can just maybe rub me there, my fever will be gone. You know, fever is something that, like, can be traced through your whole body. So if a Jewish person had fever, they were sick. And if they had fever, they had to do two things. Do something on the outside and do something on the inside. According to these scriptures, anoint someone in the name of the Lord with oil by the elders. Okay. So why the elders? Because in the New Testament, there's no such thing as an individual, friends. And that's a really massive gap between the first century and the 21st century. Because me, myself, and I is trending in the 21st century. In the first century, there was no I. It was only us. There was no me. It was always we. Always. That's why I would be Rainer Meyer, son of Johan Meyer, son of Elise Meyer, grandson of Johan Britzmeyer in that time. If you think about Middle Eastern culture, and you would ever receive an email from someone living in the Arabic countries, the email address would be that long. Because you have to state who you are in relation to someone else. There's no individual. So the New Testament is what we call a strong group society. Therefore, my problem is your problem, is our problem. And the elders ought to come only because they are the face of this us. They are the representatives of our church. The elders is not supposed to come because they have got more power in prayer or more discernment according to the scriptures. The elders is the face. And the face, the kefale, the head in the New Testament uh, culture was the thing by which you were known. That's why if the scripture is just a side note, a little segue going here. If the scripture says that the man is the head, it's got nothing to do with authority. It's got all to do with the face, the one by which the body will be known. So men, look at the way that you live. Okay, but that's all different teaching. So my problem is your problem, it's our problem. And if I'm sick, so we'll get into the grammar now. If I'm sick, I should not be alone. If I'm sick and I need something for the outside and the inside, it's not up to me to go to the medicine cupboard and make myself made lemon. We should feel it, man. Because our problems are each other's. And he says, call the elders, the face of the church, the representatives, and let them come. And let them put the outside thing on you. Let them remind you that God is with you and present with you. And let them pray with you. Don't struggle through this inner cleansing process of getting out your emotions and your fears and your doubts alone. Do it together. Now here's the leading question. Is it sin that causes sickness? Is that the question that this piece of scripture wants us to ask? Is it sin that has brought this over me? Example, John 9. Um, Jesus and his disciples walk. And uh, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? What is the reason for illness? Because whatever it is that we see on the outside, it has to have a cause on the inside. Because inside and outside is the same thing. Do you understand? So holistically, if I'm sick, my inner dimension is also sick. So what causes illness? It has to be sin. And therefore, his disciples ask that to him. Now what's interesting is Jesus' answer. It comes in verse 3. Neither this man... Nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus heals the blind guy in John 9. And here's the interesting thing the rest of John 9, the whole debate is about sin. Jesus just said, No one sinned. The reason why this man is blind was above your comprehension. It is unexplainable according to your language and your thinking. No one sinned. And he healed him, and the whole debate is, yeah, but I mean, someone had to sin. Let's be blatantly honest. I mean, he can't just not have sin in him anymore. So I can't read that whole scripture. I was going to put it up for you, but I mean, that would have just took us on a, on a whole other segue. So does Jesus connect his healing to the forgiveness of sins? 
In John 9, he says this has nothing to do with sin. Now, here's an interesting example. In Matthew 9, we find the following. So he got into a boat, that's Jesus, crossed over and came to his town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Okay, so Jesus tables that. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier? Hashtag rhetorical question. To say, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up and walk. Now, why does Jesus put that question to them? Because that was the way that they thought. So if I say your sins are forgiven, he has to walk. If I say, get up and walk, it has to mean that his sins are forgiven. Because there has to be a reason for this person's illness. Now check this, verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up. And went home. When the crowd saw this, they were all struck and gave glory to God who has given authority to men. So does Jesus say to this person, it was definitely your sin? He doesn't. But he leaves no room for this person to doubt that his sins might have not been forgiven. Does that make sense to you? So just to be clear, I'm going to heal you, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Because the man, uh, the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Fascinating. So is it sin or is it not? We won't find the answer. Jesus answers though, and I'll get back to this later, that that person, sin had nothing to do with his illness. This person will know that his sins are forgiven by the fact that I am healing his illness. So for us to read and understand this as a procedure to be followed, eh? as it is written here, is to misread the text. And I just have to state that clearly. Because the world we live in is so radically different from that world. And because it is so radically different, we can't just copy and paste those procedures and go, ah, okay, so if you're sick, this is what you do, step one, two, and three. Now, do we throw it all out? Absolutely not. Let's keep going. The second thing that I would want us to consider is the language that James uses. Because that will help us understand the scriptures better. So if you can just go to the next slide, um, Carlo, please, with a color. Okay, so I'm going to geek out a little bit now. We're going to camp out in the Greek language, because that's the language that the New Testament was written in. What I want you to see is all the red words. Suffering, sick, save, sick, raise him up, sins, forgiven, confess, sins, and healed. All connected to each other. Thank you, James, for making this nice and difficult. And then I also made the word pray or prayer purple for you so that you can see that this part is about prayer. It's not about healing sickness. And I'll get there now. So the first word he uses, suffering, means to face adversity. He refers to persecution because of staying loyal to Jesus. So that word, are you suffering, or is anyone among you suffering, has not got to do with general illness or with the rough and tumble of life or sufferings that come from that. This has got to do with I'm being persecuted and I'm facing adversity because I'm sticking with Jesus. And I'm faithful to Him and faithful to what He has called me. So if you're suffering, prayer is your answer. Second word, is anyone among you sick? Now the word he uses there is asthenewe, and that means, now listen, listen closely, to be weak, to feel feeble, to be without strength, to languish, and to be ill. So it's, a lot, it's defined a lot wider. It doesn't necessarily mean a bacterial infection in your nostrils. It's more than that. So if you are sick, pray and remind yourselves through the prayers of the elders with you that you are in community. So the outside that is given for this sickness and this languish and this feeling feeble is to remind this person that they don't have to face this alone. 
So if you feel like that, pray again. And don't pray alone. Let's keep going. Verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. So now James uses a different Greek word for sick. Not the same word. Which makes it more difficult. Because what does he mean now? Because we just got our heads around being feeble or languishing. And now he uses a different word. And the word for save means this. Check this. Save and heal. At the same time. One coin, two sides. Save and heal. Suazua is the Greek word. So properly translated, it means the following. Now listen to this. This is a ripper. And this is probably the key to this whole part. Suazua, or saving or healing, that save in verse 15 means to deliver out of danger and into safety. That's what it means. To deliver out of danger and into safety. And in the context of the New Testament, it means... God rescuing believers from the penalty and power of sin and bringing them into his provisions and grace and safety. That is what the word suazua means. Now James says, if you're sick, meaning weary, weary to the point of sickness, spent, ready to collapse, overworked, that's actually a translation possibility, and you pray, you will be suazured. You will be saved. You will be healed. You will be delivered out of this penalty. And you will be brought into God's grace and His provision and His safety. And the word that He uses for sick there, the prayer of faith will save the sick, is literally used in the New Testament once. So we've got no reference to what it means. There's no other piece of scripture that we can look at to figure out what He means. So the best possible translation would be, Weary to the point of sickness. Ready to fall over. The stuff we spoke about last week, being steadfast, being long-suffering, being patient, that is what it leads to. To that feeling of, I don't think I can carry on like this anymore. I'm done. I am spent. I am actually so tired, I think that I am getting sick. And what does he say? If you feel like that, Pray. And he says, you will be saved, you will be raised up, and you will be forgiven. Now can we just stop for a moment and consider the boundless confidence with which James prays. It's limitless. James says, pray a prayer of faith and know that you'll be saved, know that you'll be healed, know that you'll be raised up, know that you'll be put into God's grace and His safety and His provisions. Do not doubt that. So is James guaranteeing the reinstatement of sick? Is James guaranteeing physical healing? He's not. Not in this piece of scripture. But what he is, what he is doing is he's describing a faith that should have us confidently pray. It's a faith that we pray with that says, what we pray now, we believe it to be yes. We really do. We do, and we pray it together. And we pray it when we feel all these things that this piece of scripture describes to us. So that, nice one James, we'll be raised up. I can't tell you what it means. It's the only place he uses that Greek word. But that we know that our sins will be forgiven. So let me just end this part. For us to think that sickness, broadly defined, by the way that James defines it, is brought about by sin, is to think and believe inconsistent with the salvation that we have already received. And that's really important. We have been saved. That suazua, that saving and healing, being delivered out of the penalty of sin into God's provisions, it is done. No one can take that away from us. Nothing can separate us from that. No one can untie that. Literally, the word in John that he uses is te telestai alpizai. It's a perfect word. It can, it's so done that it can never be done again. That's what a perfect verb is. And our salvation is perfect. And that's what James says. Because our salvation is perfect. If you languish, if you feel feeble, if you feel ill, if you are sick, just pray. 
Because our faith is steadfast. There's nothing that can change that. You will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be healed. I found in a commentary this piece, and I want to read it with you because I think it says it better than I could. All prayer is bounded by the providence and sovereign favor of God, who knows believers' truest needs and may not grant their natural requests in just the way they would choose. The same paradox runs through the recorded teaching of Jesus. He encouraged his disciples to pray with unlimited expectation, yet he himself prayed always within the ambit of God's will, which cannot be infallibly known in advance. Always Christian prayer requires our submission to the Father's wisdom and knowledge. And even when our praying is at its most persistent and urgent, the fact remains that God gives only what is for his children's ultimate good. James's teaching then has to be set in this wider frame. Only disappointment and frustration will come if the modern interpreter fails to heed that caution. Five times. Pray, 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 pray in this piece of scripture. So if you are facing adversity, pray. If you are feeling weak and without strength, pray. If you have become weary to the point of sickness, pray. And do it together with an unbounded or a limitless confidence in what God has already done for us. Lastly, the third thing I want us to consider is confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So that you may be healed. The Greek word he uses for confession there. Once again. Nice one James. Not a common word. Is homologeo. It means. Listen to this. To voice the same conclusion. To agree. In full. Or to align with. James is not talking about the admission of sin. He's not talking about. Yep. I lied. He's talking about the confession of sin. I lied, and it is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not consistent with my identity as God's child. It hurts other people created in God's image. I am not being a representative or ambassador of Jesus Christ when I lie. Therefore, if I lie, people won't find Jesus in me. I was wrong. That, friends, is confession. And that's the word that James uses. So James says, if we get these things out of us, because remember, the outside and the inside is the same thing. If we get the inside stuff on the outside, we have to do it more than only admitting it. Now, I don't know about you, but it's quite a hard one. For me, especially in our culture. Just a segue. Confess your sins. So that you may be healed, he uses yet another word for heal. The word is pronounced iaumai. Sounds like R2D2, huh? Iaumai. And that word, once again, means to get back to physical strength. To, be, to get back to life. To get back to physical restoration. Now this confession, this agreeing, is a tough one for us. I think because it's hard to be vulnerable. And we are always scared of if what I put out now won't be held or won't be kept safe, what can this world do to me and against me with this information? That's why we don't get past admission. That's why we say things like, yes, I know it's wrong, but you know what? Man, I'm so frustrated because of my work. Or I know it's wrong, but everyone does it. James would look at you, probably touch a beard, do the slow nod and go, I don't care. I don't care if everyone does it. What does this say? What do you confess? Because remember, the confession of sin is also the confession of our faith. And he wants us to do that to each other and then to pray about it. Pray again. I want to read you this. Two hazards to do with corporate confession uh, are to be watched for and avoided. They are over-morbidity and introspection on the one side. Not realizing that you are God's child. 
not speaking the truth, not owning and claiming salvation, not accepting and receiving God's grace, but being such a sinner that the word Jesus is not even mentioned. That's the one side. And the other side is exhibitionism and an overzealous interest in another person's spiritual health. So I'm just putting it out there. We have to confess our sins to one another and we have to pray. And this is wisdom found. Is don't go to the one side that there's never grace. And don't go to the other side that we headlight each other so much with everything that we do wrong that it doesn't actually lead us to true confession. That's what Brene Brown calls headlighting. Is you put everything that is on your inside, outside, in such a way that people are blinded and go, Woo! What am I to do now? You know? It's like dropping something like, well, you know, I'm in a massive million dollar court case at the moment for fraud. But anyway, so this is what James says. But an Brown says, whoa, dude, you are blinding us. We can't do anything with that. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about this is what I need to confess. And this is my reason for confessing it. M- way more than admission. And then not go, dude, I'll be praying for you because you are really in a bad spot. That's not helping anyone. But rather to go, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. And a faithful prayer. So confession. I sometimes pray for people and I don't believe that they are going to change. And that is inconsistent with my confession of faith. That God hears every prayer. That he is almighty. That he can change anyone. That he can cut to the deepest part of our being. That he knows each one of us inside and out. And that he is sovereign over the powers that exist on the outside. I confess. Because I pray for people and I go, there's just no way that's ever going to change. And I confess it to you now. More than only admitting it. So James says, if we do that and we pray together, we will be healed. We'll be brought back to life. Let's land. Verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And then he drops the mic. Doesn't end with usual greetings, benedictions, please bring my coat, I'm a little cold. Ends with nothing like that. Not even see you later. He ends with an exhortation to refrain from disobedience. And that's James. Just in case I haven't made myself clear, let me just say it one last time. Stick. Be faithful. Be obedient. And please, would you take note of the individual? And this is a ripper for me. Will you please see if anyone strays from the truth? Because remember, in a time where the, church drew, uh, where the church grew geographically, people could slip away easily. In a time where persecution was rife and it was tough to remain obedient, people could slip away easily. And James says, and we should hear this this morning, don't let them slip. Don't. Look for them and bring them back and restore them, not to ethical codes or to the law, restore them to the faith. And remind them that their souls have been saved from death. And that because of Jesus' grace, a multitude of sins is covered. How are we doing here, Rooted? How are we doing with picking out those people and inviting them back in and bringing them back in? And that's what the book of James is all about. Amen. So there's a lot for us to consider today. And we're going into a time of worship. Worship and communion. Here's the good news. Whether it is feeling feeble, languishing, weak, sick. Whether it is that you are facing adversity. And you are having trouble sticking. It's tough to stick. I don't think that I want to be obedient anymore. Whether it is. The fact that you need to be reminded of your salvation. Whether it is that you are ready to tip over. That you are weary to such a point that you want to pass out. Here's the good news. You can bring all of that to the table today. Because on the table we'll see the bread and the cup. 
They point like fingers to the body of Jesus Christ and His blood that was shed for us. We could literally today taste and see with our own eyes God's love for us. We can come to the table today, sinners in desperate need of grace, God's children being made perfect through His wisdom and His Spirit inside of us. Anyone. No hoops to jump, no hurdles to get over. Just you, as you are. You can come to the table today. Jesus is inviting you to be fed. He's inviting you to be nurtured. And He's inviting you to be fed and be nurtured so that you can get back on the grind. So that we can grind the grace. I want to remind you that we would love to pray with you and for you. So uh, if you need to pray with someone, the we and the us this morning, uh, a few of us will be around. Your city group facilitator will also be a good person to go and pray with if you need prayer. If you don't need prayer, go and have some leftover muffins and marshmallows, some coffee on the outside. Um, If ever there was a time to join hands for the reading of the benediction, it's now. So let's join hands because we are not I but we. And uh, then I would love to end us off with a, a good word, some good news as well. We call it a benediction. And it comes to us this morning from uh, Romans chapter 8. It says the following, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.